the mantra, I would say, for everybody who's involved with horse sports, and you, you learn this one way or another, is never to give up. And if you're discouraged, don't dwell on it, but move on. I think of the setbacks that so many people had and the pressure uh, that they were under. I mean, Laura Graves, let's use her as an example. I mean, she broke her back when in a fall from this horse that was really sort of uncontrollable, Diddy, you know, became um, such a legend and such a fabulous horse, but she did not have an easy time, and she finally put him up for sale, but nobody bought him. And that also, uh, there's so much karma in these things, and fate plays a role. And if somebody had bought Diddy, well, maybe they would have gone to the Olympics, or maybe he would have been retired early uh, because they couldn't ride him. But the fact that things worked out the way they did made it possible for her to make a name for herself and a name for him and to serve the uh, U.S. cause so, so well. Welcome to the Practical Horseman podcast, featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Sandra Olenek, and this week's episode is with award-winning photojournalist Nancy Jaffer, who edited the U.S. Equestrian Team Foundation's book, Riding for the Team, inspirational stories of the USA's medal-winning equestrians and their horses. Riding for the Team chronicles the lives of those who dreamed about competing for their country and made it, sharing inspirational stories from the eight equestrian disciplines of show jumping, dressage, eventing, driving, vaulting, reining, endurance, and paradressage. Readers are immersed in the personal histories of the medal-winning riders, drivers, and vaulters who have dominated American equestrian sport over the past 28 years. The book gives readers a behind-the-scenes look at the world of top-level equestrian sport. Athletes tell their stories and those of their horses during the years they honed their talent and dedicated their lives to representing their country in the Olympics, World Equestrian Games, World Championships, and Pan American Games. You can purchase the book at www.uscet.org backslash riding for the team book sale. The book's editor, Nancy Jaffer, has covered nine Olympic Games, and her articles have appeared regularly online and in the pages of Practical Horsemen and Dressage Today magazines. She's a contributor to Horse and Hound magazine, Horse International, and In Stride, and she writes the Due South column on the Horse Sport website. She has her own website, www.nancyjaffer.com, and she wrote a weekly newspaper column on equestrian sports that appeared in the Star Ledger of New Jersey from 1972 until 2015. In our conversation, Nancy recounts anecdotes from the lives of many Olympians, including show jumpers Kent Farrington, McLean Ward, Laura Kraut, Rich Fellers, and Lucy Davis, dressage riders Laura Graves, Stefan Peters, Gunter Seidel, and Debbie McDonald, and eventers Boyd Martin, Karen O'Connor, and Amy Tryon. They're a treasure trove of great stories. Before getting into our conversation, I want to thank the sponsor of this week's podcast, Perfect Products. Don't waste your money on joint supplements that may or may not be working. Joint Impact, from the makers of Perfect Prep, starts working fast to make your horse more comfortable and improve joint health and mobility. By stacking proven joint support ingredients with soft tissue soothers and a nutraceutical show-safe pain blocker, Joint Impact quickly produces results you can see. Visit www.perfectproductseq.com 
or call 877-324-8002 to learn more. Available online and at retailers nationwide. Now, let's jump right into the conversation with Nancy, where she shares a little more about what the book is about and the inspiration for it. It's about the backgrounds and great moments of some of our most distinguished riders in the U.S. and drivers. Um, it, it talks about their background to a great extent so people can understand how they got to where they wound up. But it also gives thoughts about their sport, their horses, and their lives as equestrians. And what was the inspiration behind the book, or how did how did the idea for it come about? Um, Bill Steinkraft, who was captain of the U.S. equestrian team and uh, an Olympic gold medalist, had written a book after the USCT had been in existence for 25 years called the USCT Book of Riding. The USCT was uh, formed after the Army discontinued the cavalry teams, obviously, and the Army became mechanized and it had no longer an interest in, in uh, supporting teams for uh, equestrian sport. So the USCT was formed and um, Bill commemorated it by talking to people who had been founders, people who had uh, made a, a great mark in international sport, and also some of the people um, who perhaps their names were not so familiar, but they could offer tips on uh, things in terms of riding and training horses and the sport itself. So in 1990, they thought, well, let's do another book. We need to do an update. And Bill started it. And then he came to me. I think he was very busy at that time. And, of course, he'd been retired as captain of the team since 1972. And he handed it over to me. And we were doing a different format then where we found it's a format very similar to the to the current book, where we found um, uh, we selected people who had made a mark for the team in the various disciplines. At that time, the U.S. equestrian team only supported show jumping, uh, dressage, and eventing, which are the Olympic disciplines, and driving, because Finn Casperson, the chairman at that time, was very interested in driving. And then for the uh, next edition, which took um, 28 years to get going, <laughs> um, I thought it was time, and I went to Bonnie Jenkins, the uh, executive director of the U.S. Equestrian Team Foundation, and said, uh, you know, we should we should catch up with this because there's a lot of people who've done great things since the last book came out, and I think people would like to know about it. And so we, we broadened it then because um, the team is now involved also with vaulting, and paradressage and raining and endurance. So it's, uh, you know, it's a broader spectrum of athletes and their sports. And did the, um, did the writers themselves write their pieces? How did you collect all of these wonderful stories? I interviewed them uh, and I knew most of the writers and I knew their stories, but I wanted to get a little bit deeper into it than I would have for a story in Practical Horseman or some other publication. Um, only two writers wrote, well, actually, Carrie Milliken, who was the individual bronze medalist in 1996 for eventing, wrote her story. She gave it to me as a draft and we worked on it together and we sent it back and forth. And then uh, Kareth Lemon, who was a vaulter, uh, did a little bit in terms of writing it, but we worked together on it. So basically, um, it was a real, 
it was really just an interview format in general, and we talked about what the topics should be. And sometimes the topics were really obvious for Graves. You know, everybody wants to know uh, how she got Ferdotti's to be what he was when her mother had just only bought him off of a video when he was a weanling. So, you know, how did he become an Olympic medal horse? Uh, so that one was easy, and we called that the making of Diddy. It was uh, it's amazing that in a lot of ways the uh, titles – suggested themselves. After I did the, the stories, the titles just sort of popped out at me or popped into into my head. And then, of course, the writers had a chance to review the chapters after they were finished. And in general, they didn't add anything. They might have said, oh, I forgot to mention so-and-so who was my trainer, or I forgot to mention this horse that made a difference in my life. But basically, um, you know, it was just a very cooperative collegial process and a lot of fun. It sounds like a lot of fun. Are there any general insights that readers can take away from the book that, that you found as you were compiling it? Yeah, I, I think the, uh, the the mantra, I would say, for everybody who's involved with horse sports, and you, you learn this one way or another, is never to give up. And if you're discouraged, don't dwell on it, but move on. I think of the setbacks that so many people had and the pressure uh, that they were under. I mean, Laura Graves, let's use her as an example. I mean, she broke her back when, in a fall from this horse that was really sort of uncontrollable, Diddy, you know, became um, such a legend and such a fabulous horse, but did not have an easy time. And she finally put him up for sale, but nobody bought him. And that also, uh, there's so much karma in these things and fate plays a role. And if somebody had bought Diddy, well, maybe they would have gone to the Olympics or maybe he would have been retired early uh, because they couldn't ride him. But the fact that things worked out the way they did made it possible for her to make a name for herself and a name for him and to serve the uh, U.S. cause so so well. Right. I, I thought was interesting about her story, too, was um, – that he, you know, in addition to her injuring herself, I guess he once dislocated or he broke his jaw, if I'm remembering that correctly. And it, that's right. It yes, he, he broke it. He, you know, he was sort of a mischievous horse. You know, he was always into everything. And they had those iron bars on one of his stalls, and he somehow got his jaw caught and then broke it. And again, Laura just stood by him some people might say eh, you know that's it for him he's never going to be able to how would he keep his mouth closed you know his jaw was crooked and how would he be able to to actually be on the bit and she slept um by him um the whole time that uh they were repairing the jaw and trying to uh um you know work with him and and um and and get this accomplished so that he could be comfortable again and um, she, again, she didn't give up. She didn't say, well, I guess that's it. I shouldn't uh, do anything more with him. So that was a, a, a very um, typical of Laura, who is just uh, not only a go-getter, but loves her horse so much and would never leave him alone. She was fantastic about that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think sort of along the lines of that mantra, it seemed um, that several of the riders had talked about not in a direct way but the mental aspect of the game and just almost never giving up when the pressure you know whether it was in competition or trying to make some horses work I think one that comes to mind was you know Kent Farrington you know he had just talked about how you know in this sport so many things are out of your control and you know what is under your control is managing the horses and having people around you to support them 
what you have to do is plan on being ready for opportunity when it comes your way. Um, and I thought Kent's story was very interesting because of that. Well, Kent, uh, an example of Kent and his uh, really tough go-getter attitude is, um, you know, he was injured when he fell off a horse he didn't know very well, and um, his leg was broken, and I had the same break, almost the same break, and it took me 10 months to recover, and he started rehabbing as soon as the operation was over, and of course, you know, he's been winning ever since. He just doesn't take no for an answer. And it was really, the, it's a funny story about Kent because for Christmas when he was a child, uh, he and his sister got plastic horses. You know, well, neat. Then something nice to find under the Christmas tree, but not for Kent. He gave his to his sister and said, I can't ride a plastic horse in the Olympics. And it turned out that actually his real present was a pony and his parents took him out to see it. But um, that was an example that even at, as a child, he knew what he wanted to do. And of course, he wound up doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the same can be said for McLean, uh, McLean Ward. Um, I was struck by, you know, he talked about a, a huge moment was at the Rio Olympics and he was the anchor and they had thought that they had a shot at the gold, but it turned out that France had a clear round and, and clinched it, but he still had to go in just for the U.S. to to even medal, he still had to go in and and get a clear round. And he talked about how like he had 45 seconds to sort of digest that they lost the goal, but he still had to go in and do a job. And, um, you know, I know you know McLean so well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, McLean's focus is unparalleled. Um, He knows what he has to do. He goes in and does it. And that was just the most perfect example of the Olympics where thought they were going to be going for gold and then they found that they couldn't be and he didn't go into the ring and get distracted and think, oh, you know, does it matter as much anymore? Or he wasn't upset. He just said, I know what I have to do and I'm going to do it. And that's the way he is about everything. And at the same time, he's a very nice person. He's always kind to the children that come up to him and the adults too, asking for autographs. He always gives them some time and, you know, he hands his ribbons out very often uh, along the rail when the crowd gathers after he's won. So he just is somebody who's an all-around person. I admire him very much. He um, knows what he has to do, but at the same time, it's not so consuming that he can't be a human being and connect with others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and another story uh, that, that struck me was Boyd Martin. Um, uh one little anecdote he he talked about was, uh, and he he certainly had a very interesting route to the top. But uh, he talked, and I, I guess this comes back to, um, you know, not giving up or taking advantage of op- opportunities. Was uh, getting a, he, I think he was back in Australia after traveling a bit, and he uh, got a horse to ride from a man who had just gotten out of a maximum security prison for attempted murder, um, and. Uh, I guess, could you talk a little bit about Boyd and and just kind of that never give up or taking advantage of every opportunity you can? Well, one thing I would say about Boyd, I mean, he's the gutsiest rider ever. And I think that comes from growing up in Australia. And certainly um, it was a very um, difficult way for him to to get to where he is. He worked for a man who was... um, rather demanding, shall we say. And after one event where um, the jumping didn't go so well, they got back to the farm at 3 a.m. and the trainer set up a course and made all the horses go over it. You know, it was a course that, that uh, mimicked the thing where they had problems at the, at the event. 
So Boyd is very gutsy, and I think that's one of the reasons he's had so many injuries. He's famous for putting uh, pictures of his x-rays online (laughs) and giving us the details of the surgeries. Um, But he realizes now that he's getting a bit older, and he needs to preserve himself for the more important things. He realizes now that there's a bigger purpose, and that that comes with maturity for a lot of the riders who are gung-ho when they start out and perhaps don't always have the best judgment. I thought it was interesting how Laura Kraut got the ride on Simba Run, who kicked off her international career. It had been a 105-degree day at a horse show down in Tennessee, and it was too hot for Simba Run's owner to ride him, so he asked Laura to ride the horse instead, and the rest is history. Can you speak about that story? Yeah, it was interesting. It's funny how these things come about. Jeff Sutton, who owned Simba Run, who was uh, a thoroughbred and just a a horse with a marvelous disposition and a great heart, um, just felt like as an older person, it would be tough for him to uh, make it around a Grand Prix in that kind of heat. And Laura, being younger, younger people always are are better in the heat, uh, took over and they just clicked. They were wonderful. And even though she has had many other terrific horses, including the little Ray Cedric uh, that she rode at the uh, 2008 Olympics um, when she was on the gold medal team, I think she's still most identified with Simba Run um, by those of us who knew her back in the old days because they were just, that was a combination that clicked, that made her career. And it was charismatic that he was a a thoroughbred and he was as gutsy as she was. And you bring up a good point about, you know, a, a horse, horses making someone's career. And um, several of the riders mentioned that. Uh, Stefan Peters comes to mind with Udon. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, how Udon came into his life and how they, they progressed? Well, Stefan, uh, for people that don't know, uh, came from Germany. He was, he was German. And, um, you know, it was a, a big thing for him to come to the United States. And Udon was a horse that was owned by his father. And uh, they, when he came to the U.S., they sent the horse with him, which was pretty incredible. Uh, unfortunately, um, there was a little bit of family strife because uh, his grandfather owned a clothing store and Stefan was expected to take over the job running that. And instead, here he goes off to America with, with his horse. But uh, they never thought it was going to be an Olympic course. And um, he brought it along to the point where it was, where he made the team. And I think everybody remembers that, I believe it was during the Grand Prix special, uh, when he finished his salute, he took a little American flag out of his pocket and, and waved it at the crowd. And it was just, it was one of those those great moments. But uh, I know that Stefan always thinks of Udon as the horse that uh, was his foundation and enabled him to be a regular member of the team for so many years. And then two other horses who come to mind were uh, the section about Karen O'Connor talking about uh, Biko and Teddy, who um, were for sure very different in size and stature, but um, I know you know those horses well. Can you talk a little bit about them? Well, Teddy was a pony and that was just, that made him, such a crowd pleaser. He, you know, who thinks a pony could go around the four-star at Kentucky? I remember Jane Atkinson, who ran uh, Rolex Kentucky for many years, kept an eye on him, and she said if he was ever struggling at any point, she was going to have the stewards stop Karen so that uh, 
you know, he wouldn't uh, over overreach from, from what his uh, ability was. But it turns out that his ability was just enough to do anything that, that was wanted. But he was just a special horse, and he was one that captured the uh, the crowd. Anybody who watched him could see just because of his size that he was amazing, and they became instant fans, I think. And Biko was uh, just the polar opposite and real tribute to Karen that she could ride both horses so well. Biko was absolutely huge and uh, and dynamic and took quite a bit of the doing, shall we say. But he was one of the best horses ever that we've seen in uh, eventing on the U.S. side. And he was... Um, Horse of the Year, I think he was Horse of the Century for the 20th century, as a matter of fact, um, because he was just so consistent. And uh, he was her horse at um, the 1996 Olympics. He was actually an interesting thing. As a young horse, he was he was really feral. I know the horses in Ireland, you know, often are turned out for several years, and so they're not as um, accustomed to human contact as many of the horses that we, we raise here. So she couldn't, it took her two years before she could get on without someone holding him. And and they're also different when you think about it. The contrast between um, Teddy, the pony, and Biko was obvious because of their size. But you have to think of the contrast among all the horses that these very experienced riders uh, uh, are involved with because the the personalities are different, the abilities are different, and they have to suss them out and, and figure out what makes them tick and how to get the best out of them. And that brings me to, uh, I was surprised uh, in the section with Gunter Seidel, um, he was describing Graf George, and I had not realized uh, the horse was as excitable as he was, and and Gunter was talking about his how he prepared the horse, and um, I think it was before the uh, Atlanta Olympics, he said, you know, he would have to get on sort of at the beginning of the day and ride him for an hour, and then, you know, right during his warm-up another 45 minutes um can you talk a little bit about graf george he, he had such a an amazing presence i know that gunter felt bad about having to ride the horse so much um in the warm-up but uh he he didn't really pressure him you know it was just to get him exercised get him out get him loosened up and uh take some of the little bit of the gas out of the tank so he didn't do any real movements you know he just did a lot of transitions and um, uh, things that, that just would loosen him up without getting him um, too crazy. You know, I've seen people who do piaf and passage before they go in the arena or in the warm-up, and it just, by the time they get in there, the horse has had it, does not want to do those movements, and you might see them rearing or refusing to do it, it, it turning around. I've seen that so many times. And uh, Gunter was always good at knowing what his horses could and couldn't do and how to get the maximum from them with, you know, really good horsemanship, great techniques that he developed over the years. One, uh, I, I found Lucy Davis's story interesting in that she talked about between the 2014 World Equestrian Games, where she was on the bronze medal team, and the 2016 Olympics, where she was on the team silver. She had she had a, a tough time, and she attributed it to forgetting how to actually ride and becoming over analytical. And every time something went wrong, she made it into an issue. Um, I think that's something a lot of riders, whether you're at the local level or, you know, obviously all the way up to the Olympics, um, people struggle with just overthinking, um, you know, and, and sort of forgetting how to, to ride 
naturally. Um, I guess, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know what happens when you want something too much? Um, it becomes really beyond the focus. It becomes uh, an issue and a mania sometimes. I'm not saying it was a mania for her. But, you know, people just, they focus on that and everything else around them drops away. And she finally realized that uh, she needed to look at both sides of the coin. So, you know what? She might make her dreams come true or she might not. Uh, but she had to put things in perspective and just ride her ride. And she was quite lucky to have Robert Ridland as the coach because he was somebody who understood her talent, understood her horse's talent, and knew that if he stuck with her, he would get someone that could really make a difference for the team. And she was able to, to do that. Uh, I know that he had talks with her, and she got herself together and uh kept her eye on on the ball without thinking, oh, what if I don't make it? And uh, she wound up making it. And Robert Rowland, there's a, a chapter about him. And I thought that was interesting. Um, he gives a flavor of how the U.S. equestrian team operated under Bert Denemethy, um and how it operates now. Can you talk about the differences he noted between then and now? Well, there's a completely different era um, when the U.S. equestrian team was first founded. Um, it was really, in some ways, almost along a cavalry line. And Bertha Nemethy was in the Hungarian cavalry, basically. Uh, he was supposed to be in the 1940 Olympics, but they were called off because of World War II. And so he was a very strict disciplinarian and someone who made sure that riders were properly dressed and that they had their manners when they went to the post uh, competition parties. And Robert, is, he's a Californian, and he, although he grew up under the Nemethy, or he, he uh, as a, in his late teens, he came to the team and rode under the Nemethy and was very, um, uh, you know, had to toe the line, which he might not have had to done, do normally in his uh, equestrian life. Uh, he kind of took the best of both worlds, the California, a little bit of laissez-faire attitude, but he also um, understood that discipline is important, and uh, giving support to the riders is important and giving them guidance whenever necessary. Um, and he was very close to Bill Steinkraus, um, the, as I mentioned before, the captain of the U.S. team and the gold medals. And Bill took him under his wing and really told him what was important and how to get the most out of team life. And I think that Robert remembered Bert and remembered Bill. And when he came on board, he did things differently than they would do, but utilized the wisdom that they had uh, uh, in, uh, shown in, in getting such great results for the team and, and bringing America into the, into the forefront. America was an underdog um, after it lost the cavalry teams, and they, um, the idea of, of, that they could compete against the, the big powerhouses, particularly in Great Britain, and even Mexico at that time um, was it was a tough climb for the for the uh, riders and the coaches, but they got it done. Switching gears a little bit, another um, story that I had not realized that I, I found fascinating and and sort of speaks to sticking to your plan or or no and and knowing your horse was Rich Fellers, and he had described uh, when he was going into the jump off at the 2012 World Cup Finals. Um, he was jumping off with Steve Gradat of Switzerland for the 
for the championship. And uh, in the warm-up, Rich said that he didn't want to jump flexible, which is an unusual approach. And instead, he did walk-trot transitions and then went into the ring and and won. Um, I can imagine people thinking that's crazy because you tend to to want to jump your horse right before you go in the ring. Can you talk a little bit about Rich's approach as you know it? Well, he knew flexible so well, and that was uh, what always paid off for him that he uh, and that horse were one. I mean, they they really were. They were thinking along the same lines, and he knew exactly what the horse needed. And the uh, the coach had said, are you sure you don't want to jump before you go in the ring for this very important round? And he said, no. And instead, he just watched Steve Gerdot, who uh, has been number one in the world since then, and uh, saw his track and figured out how to better it. And, and so he did. One other uh, chapter that, that I found um, very touching was the, the chapter about Amy Tryon. Um, and this was, um, obviously, people spoke about, about Amy. Um, and I liked what her husband had said, that for Amy, it wasn't about beating so-and-so. It was about whether she can, could compete at the level of the Mike Plums, the Jimmy Woffords. Um, can you talk a little bit about Amy? Amy was such an amazing person. You know, she was uh, an EMT and firefighter. And that was, uh, when you think of of the strain that it takes to do a job like that, uh, and particularly for a woman, I mean, I hate to say it, but, um, you know, people forget that women haven't always been in those kind of positions. And Amy just um, was excellent at that as she was everything and absolutely gave it her all. she was so totally dedicated. She had to work harder than anybody else. She would do shift after shift after shift on her job um, with the fire department so that she could take enough time off to go to various events. And I'll never forget in the 2000, um, no, I'm sorry, it was the 2002 um, World Championships, she had a fall and uh, she injured herself badly. But in those days, falls were not elimination on cross country. She got back on the horse and she finished. And then the next day, even though she's in tremendous pain, and of course you can't take painkillers when you're you know, competing because they test you for drugs, uh, she got back on and she finished. And we wound up with a gold medal. Wow. Yeah, that... That was Amy. She was, she was, she was inspirational and she proved that even with out advantages as long as you try and you give it your all it can be done i mean her horse was um she got him off an ad in the paper he'd been like a mountain pack horse and that's just when you think about that it's amazing all these people spending six figures and nine figures on horses uh from europe and here she had this this little guy and she was uh fantastic and that was his name Ogio. Ogio. yep yep so, Nancy, you know, there's obviously so many wonderful stories in this book. Um, are there any other, you know, last of the riders that um, our listeners might might find interesting? Yeah, um, I think the story of Debbie McDonald is ex- inspiring because a lot of people don't realize uh, that she was a hunter-jumper rider and doing quite well in California when she had a very bad fall. And this was shortly after she'd had a baby and she was reluctant to continue jumping because, you know, it can be dangerous and she felt responsibility to her child. 
So her husband suggested that she um, go into dressage, which, you know, she had no experience at all with dressage. And uh, she said, okay, I'm going to do it. And she went to Hilde Gurney, who was, um, uh, you know, at that time uh, a top trainer in California and had been on her 1984 Olympic team. And she learned dressage from the, from the ground up. And obviously it was successful. She was um, a double gold medalist at the 1999 Pan American Games. And she was, she came very close to an individual medal on our silver team at the 2002 World Equestrian Games. And of course she was on our um, bronze medal Olympic team at the 2004 Games. And her advice is always that if you work hard every day, show up on time and give 100% to every single client and horse, uh, you will find that a lot of people will come and support you and that you'll be very successful. And I thought what was also inspirational was that uh, I believe she was 50 years old um, at her first Olympics. Yeah, it was it was very cool. It was the 2004 Olympics in Athens, Greece. And um, there was a big birthday party for her. The team had a house sort of in the suburbs of Athens. And it was just a wonderful occasion where everybody was there they they were thinking about having fun and saluting her and uh, just enjoying themselves as opposed to all the pressure of the games and trying to win a medal. It was really a, a memorable night. I can call it up in my mind and see all the smiling faces and Debbie's was uh, the happiest of all because she had achieved her goal of being in the Olympics and she had all her friends around her and uh, she was going to continue to go on to do other great things uh, at that time. She didn't know she would wind up being the dressage coach as she is now but um, she knew that there was a lot of, ahead of her and um, it, it, 50 was just a, it was just a milestone it wasn't anything else it wasn't like oh you're getting too old it really was a, a perfect stop along the way to salute somebody who changed her life and uh, made a huge success out of it right. and I thought what was also nice about Debbie was that um, she'd had 14 she'd ridden Brentrina or or was involved with Brentina for 14 years, uh, nine years at Grand Prix, which I think speaks to Debbie's, you know, passion for for Brentina and the horses in general. Debbie is wonderful with horses, and she cares about the horses. I'm going to say as people, you know, for what they are, for their personality. Um, and Brentina's retired now in California, and she keeps in touch with the people who have her, and she still holds a very special place in, in Debbie's heart. I don't think I've ever been to as emotional event as Brentina's retirement at um, the 2010 World Cup Finals in Las Vegas, uh, where Debbie and her husband and uh, the family that had supported her through the years and who owned Brentina um, were all gathered, and it was just the, the stands were packed. It was very, very, very exciting. And the, the Thomas family, um, they were thrilled to be in the ring and a part of it. You know, they couldn't ride the horse, of course. But um, Peggy and uh, uh, Perry and Jane Thomas were all there to, to support her. And that was that was typical of how things would go with Debbie, that people, once they got involved with her, they loved her and they would support her and be her friends. Uh, and and be glad of it. Well, as I said, Nancy, thank you so much for speaking with me and um, just fascinating stories. And there's plenty more uh, in in the book writing for the team. So um, again, thank you very much.
It was it was a real privilege to do this book and have the chance to talk again to many of the writers I hadn't seen in years and uh, get updates from those that I see more frequently. Uh, and I hope that the readers feel that they're getting a real personal introduction to these uh, marvelous folks and what they've done with horses and that it inspires them to do something even better with their own horses. Thanks for listening to this week's episode with Nancy Jaffer about the U.S. Equestrian Team Foundation's book, Riding for the Team. And a big thank you to the sponsor of this week's episode, Perfect Products, the makers of Perfect Prep. Learn more at www.perfectproductseq.com. Join us again for upcoming conversations with eventer Ryan Wood and show jumper Katie Monahan Prudon. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review the show. I'm Sandra Olenek, and you've been listening to the Practical Horseman Podcast.